Welcome once again to the Ace Podcast with me, Pete Perfides. Um, You know the drill by now. It's a space in which we shoot the breeze with ostensibly well-adjusted adults and convene to talk about the musical obsessions that we never quite grew out of, often enjoyed on formats that were supposed to have long since become obsolete by now. And in the case of my companion today, his passions have acted as a slow-release creative fuel, which has resulted in a steady stream of excellent releases, both in his young life as a soup dragon, in his slightly less young life, collaborating with Isabel Campbell on her records with Mark Lanigan, or on his own vehicles, uh, Green Peppers, Snow Goose, and finally as a solo artist on his brand new mini album for Violet Records, When I Mean What I Say. I am, of course, talking about Jim McCulloch. Jim, how are you? Yeah, well, I'm fine. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Good. Where are you? T- t- set, set the scene. Tell set me where you, what you can see. Well, I'm currently looking out my back window at uh, Annie's Land in Glasgow. Um, it's a verdant green pasture. No, it's not really verdant green pastures, but certainly a, a walkway with some trees on it. Yeah, it's... Yeah. And whereabouts in Glasgow is that? It's just in uh, the west west end. You go through the west end out towards uh, the road out to Loch Lomond, but it's still very much in the city. I, 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 the west end is. I've only, I've only sort of gone through it really. It's where the university is, right? Yeah, the the, the west end is a real f- uh, focal point for, you know, for students and kind of the bohemian lifestyle junkies that kind of thing. It's where the creative people end up. The first time I interviewed uh, Stuart Murdoch from yeah. Ben and Sebastian, it was, of course, in a cafe in the West End. It feels like... Uh, that, and so that that in itself kind of gave me as, as much an indication of what who who, who kind of gathers there yeah. as, as, as anything, really. No, no surprises at all. No. Okay, but that's, <laughs> I mean, I'm quite envious because it looked so beautiful. And I remember sort of one time uh, uh, just cycling... Cycling through, I, I took my bike onto the onto the train, and mm-hmm. uh, and I was reviewing a Bat for Lashes gig at the university, and um, and it was and weirdly enough, it was it felt very it felt lovely to be there because I was on a um, I had a bit of work that I had, I'd, I'd yet to finish doing. I had to file a review of a group called Butcher Boy who mm-hmm. uh, who are based in Glasgow, so it felt very fitting to be writing about Butcher Boy's music in the West End of Glasgow. Yeah, so that's what I remember. Anyway, enough about me. Um, it's um, I get one that many things strike me when I sort of think about your sort of career as a musician, and uh, and but I guess the most immediate thing to, that springs to mind on the basis of of this new album you've released is just how sort of very how very long it's taken you to move into the centre of the stage. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's been a process. It's been a thirty-year move from stage left to stage centre, and it's, <laughs> it's it feels it feels uh, you know very gradual as well. It's just it's a process, I guess, that involves self confidence and listening to your instincts and just developing your your passions and your skills for for writing songs. I guess. Was it a self confidence issue to start with? Was it? Was it? Did you not sort of think at the beginning that? You could front a band. Well, it wasn't really on on my radar. I was always very aware. I wasn't the best singer in the world. I was. I quite enjoyed being a backing singer and a guitarist. Um, I'm quite happy to let other people take centre stage, you know. And and I did that fine for a good couple, you know, good number of years. But then I got my felt a wee bit itchy about it, and I thought, well, I'd like to be 
you know, singing my songs now and rather than contributing to other people's songs as much as I enjoyed it, uh, I think it's time for me to start, you know. Right. Okay. Well, you. I mean, say you don't. You don't. I mean, your vo- your voice is 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 great, and um, it's not. Um, I don't. I'm, I can see why people who kind of start off playing guitar, who sort of stand, as you said, stage left, might sort of not think that. But thing. The thing is, as I get older, I sort of think that actually most people have a great voice because if you just sort of like. If you're fairly relaxed about the way you use it, then mm. you know the, the the accumulation of your life's experiences sort of uh, are audible in that voice. And yeah. I think that's very much the case. I feel like when I listen to to these songs, uh. you know, uh, I'm listening to a, a kind of life lived, well lived. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I feel there's a real. When I was recording the songs, I was. I did them live, uh, vocal and guitar at the same time, so there was no real opportunity to edit like vocals or maybe a fluffed guitar line here or there. It really was like a one-take situation. So I was very aware of that connection between the voice and the guitar that this has to flow as one thing, and mm. you know, and I think that there's an adrenaline and underlying that as well. It's just trying to remember the words, the chords, and plus yeah. try, try not to muck up, you know. That's true. That is, that's very, very true. There's a kind of focus that has to be there. Yeah. What might, what marks these songs out? I guess some more people might know you, certainly in more recent years, for your work with uh, Snow Goose, which is a project which is fronted by uh, Anna Sheard. Anna mm-hmm. Sheard is the singer. Mm-hmm. Um, what, um, what marks these songs out as non-Snow Goose songs? That's a good question. Um, I, th- I think the first Snogus album itself was a, a wrote as a vehicle for Anna to sing um, specifically. So these weren't songs I just had lying about. Um, Anna had sang a couple of tunes on the last Green Peppers album I recorded called Adventures in the Slipstream. And mm-hmm. I was so taken by her for her vocal performance and her, just her kind of style and her delivery and, and the whole whole thing about her voice that inspired me to um, right with her, you know, right for her, and then mm. after that process, um, and the the great we get great feedback from that, we, we decided you know to write together. So, but you know, initially it was about me writing for her, and this gave this has given me sort of breathing space to fall back into my own sort of bubble about my in, mm. in my own music. So yeah, there's a certain freedom, and I'm not writing, th- imagining somebody else singing it. I'm just writing for the sake of writing. Yeah, and that sort of is very. It's a sort of very, in the execution, sounds kind of very relaxed to me. It's very relaxed. So a melody, everything you do really, melody is always um, to the fore. And you're not yeah. really shy about sort of concealing your influences. Um, no, I mean, I know what I kind of, I guess it's the old Yorkshire thing. I know what I like and I like what I know, you know, but I, I do have that kind of attitude. So I, and I think it's inspired by maybe like listening to um, Brian Wilson, when he would write a song, it was always a really unexpected twist to make it different from the one the song before. Or Stevie Wonder would do it. You'd mm. be this unexpected twist that, but you know, it's instantly them, and they were maybe searching for that. And every song they were they were writing, so that that's kind of I'm not professing to be up in that high altar, but I do feel that having to search, you know search for something a bit different in the melodic twists, or maybe a, a, an extra beat in the bar, or just something a wee bit different, um, just make it your own and something you enjoy listening back to yourself 
I said, oh, yeah, that's why, that's why I did that, you know. When you study other songwriters, and I guess anyone who writes songs must be looking at what other songwriters do with a slightly different eye to sort of, you know, like I don't write songs. So I think, I'm sure you must be looking out for different things or you must like spot little tricks that, that you think, yeah. I, I, see, I see what they did there. And yeah. that's... No, is is that how it works with you? I, I, I try not to, you know. I mean, that kind of makes it sound a little bit um, academic, and you know, there's a, the formula and stuff. But I think if you look, if you kind of look beyond, the, you know, the basic formula of the song, you know, the, the verse, the chorus, the middle eight, and how to get from the beginning of the song to the end of the song, that sort of melodic arc, or you know, the, the melodic story that, that you're, yeah. trying to, you're trying to use that as a, a vehicle. To connect connect emotionally with people, but I think I think once you you learn that, you kind of have to forget it again and then just go with the flow. You know, I think there's a lot of that. I think which only comes um, from experience. I think just you know repeating that process over decades, basically. And um, so yeah, yeah, you sort of is in that sense. Then is it easier to sort of um, is it better almost to sort of think of songs when you're not near an instrument when you're sort of in the way that maybe as a, as a kid and you first think of melodies you sort of might just something might come to you on the bus because then you don't really worry about the uh technicalities of how you yeah. realize is, yeah. is there... there's a definitely an element of that i think you've got a melody i mean if you've got something stuck in your brain you've got, you've, it's so easy just to stick it on your phone now what whistle a, a retune into your, your iphone or whatever but then once you've got the melody then you can take it home and, and examine it and say, well, am I, am I going to place major chords under this or minor chords under this? Am I going to, what kind of beat am I going to put, put to it? You know, so you've got your basic melody and then it's just what you do afterwards, really, that's, that makes, that's the craft, I think, you know? Yeah. And do you know, do you know straight away when something's a keeper, as it were? Sometimes, I think, yeah, I think, yeah, you, you, sometimes you just know and you think you've got to start trusting your, your instincts about it all. And, um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes uh, as well, obviously the chords might come first or a chord sequence or a wee guitar riff and it will crystallise right. that way. So, I mean, every time is different, but there's there's wee elements that you always return to. And did you, um, you were, uh, you know, uh, kind of famously so, especially in the light of um, Grant McPhee's um, Teenage Superstars documentary. Yeah. You know, you, you were part of an extraordinary sort of teenage peer group. I mean, you know, looking back now, it's the sort of stuff that you, you know, you wouldn't dare to make it up because it would seem <laughs> too unrealistic that they're in this, you know, quite heavily working class mm. uh, sort of suburb of, of Glasgow, it was Glasgow. Was it Glasgow itself? Well, we were we were based um, about fifteen miles out in a place, Bells Hill, and then a wee town further out again called Motherwell. So they were next to each other on the, the train line that would, you know, the commuter train that would take you into right. Glasgow, and that's kind of how, you know, these strange friendships um, start. You know, they, some of us were busking in town, and and from Motherwell, and some of us were some of them were busking in town. They would go on at Bells Hill, and you know you. You're seeing kindred spirits, and you're, you end up chatting to each other. And we were talking about a bunch of people, and you're all in your teenagers, teenage yeah. years at this point. And we're talking about, you know, yourself, and uh, you know, and um, you know the re- you know Sean from the Suit Dragons, uh, later to become High Five Sean. Mm-hmm. You know, members of Teenage Fan Club, um, and um, 
and you know somewhere along the line uh you know bobby gillespie enters this oh that was east kilbride wasn't it bobby bobby in the mary chain yeah i think yeah, they were east kilbride but bobby was def- i think it was from the east end of glasgow you know right but, okay yeah. and so but it seemed it, you know and um yes it seems just in, in, incredible and joe mcalinden of course yeah who, uh, yeah uh, all part of that scene, Douglas from the BMX Bandit. And, you know, so it seems like a, an, an unbelievable coincidence that these kids, you know, you see pictures of you, you, you know, you look incredibly <laughs> young. Um, you look, you, you, I'm sure, I know you get it all the time, but, you yeah. know, it's just incredible how young you you look. And, um, and you know, to, to be wary, like if I, you know, I, as someone who was just a couple of years, maybe three years younger than you, I don't know what exactly, but... <laughs> If I'd seen if I'd seen someone in my town who was wearing a brown suede jacket like the one that you're wearing, uh-huh. I think God, I need to try and be friends with that guy. <laughs> there was definitely an, an element of that because you know you're, you're sizing these these other guys up and you're thinking, yeah, I like that, I like that, and then they would maybe carrying like record bags and inside the bag they'd be they'd check it out, they'd do a Swell Maps album and maybe a copy of Beach Boys Greatest Hits. And I swear to God, it's, it's such a cliche to say that, but that's that's what it was like, you know. We were really checking each other out. But myself and Joe McLendon, we came from a, a kind of more our music was kind of was a concert band at school. So we were exposed to a lot of like kind of light jazz music, like Glenn Miller and and Joe Beam and people like that. And and we brought we kind of brought that to the, the party, and, and the other guys brought the kind of post punk thing to the party, you know. And it's in in the middle of all that, that kind of a Venn diagram of, of all these influences, we sort of found ourselves, and just you know, we, we knew there was no rules. People at Orange just had showed us like, you just go for it, and you you do it with a smile on your face. So, how old are you at this point? This at this point, I've, I'm maybe like seventeen, eighteen. Right. Okay. And. Uh... And you're sort of, um, and what what was the transition for you? What kind of music, what 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 were you, what records were you buying on a Saturday afternoon beforehand, and then what what were you kind of more likely to be trying to get hold of afterwards? Well, uh, when I was at high school, I was I was knocked out by um, Orange Juice, Aztec Camera, but then from them, I would be reading like Smash Hits interviews. Um, by Roddy Frame and he'd be name dropping things like the Chocolate Watch Band and Love and Michael Head would be name dropping Francois Hardy so I was just voraciously trying to find these records you know and obviously it's the pre-YouTube days nothing's really at, the, at your fingertips so you're writing down lists and lists of records that you've got to hear you've got to find <laughs> somehow and it's and it's the most soul-destroying and exciting thing when you go into record shops you know because you think well, will this be the time you're going to find, you know, that uh, copy of Forever Changes with the original cover, yeah. that kind of thing, and and that got even more magnified when we went on tour, you know, originally with yeah. the, the Soup Dragons, because, yeah, you know, just finding all these wee record stores um, in certain parts of town, they would always mm. make a make a beeline for them, and, and spend at least well, an hour, you know. You're a well at that point in your teenage years, you know, you're you you're a detective, aren't you? Because you're sort of. Um, like you said, you're looking at the credits and you're trying yeah. to cross-reference names that are on different records uh, yeah. with names that are mentioned in interviews in magazines. Yeah. Um, you know, you're following leads. You know, it's like Bergerac. You know, you're yeah. <laughs> like you're constantly yeah. sort of uh, 
but it's funny what you say about Roddy Frame in in because I did that as well, and um, mm. you know, years and years later, I interviewed Roddy, and I said, um, "How on earth were you?" You know, the first time I ever heard about Django Reinhardt, pretty much, was when you mentioned him in an interview. So obviously, I wrote it down. <laughs> how on earth were you listening to what? How, how does that work? Yeah, he just said libraries. You go, and I thought, of course, public libraries. They had records, and he would just go down to the lending library, mm. and he just pick out something that he liked the look of. And in that moment, you sort of realise what we've lost you know by yeah. losing you know by losing libraries you know or you know by losing records or whatever it is you yeah know. i think as well the fact that that sort of focus of mind he must have had at that age 14 15 to actually yeah. to actually do that um it's 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 almost um, breathtaking you know yeah yeah it's funny you should mention the jazz thing you know you you said you brought people like joe beam to the table yeah because it is there in your play it is there in the way you kind of write songs there is this there's this kind of sense of space mm. and um and just a sort of slightly more kind of relaxed feeling to the way to the to the way you play especially when you're playing an acoustic guitar yeah i think i mean i, I really get um turned on to the, that idea of quiet music you know and um, just that, that kind of people the way people sang uh, those brazilian bossa nova records they almost whispered them but the, that oh. brought a real a real power to the performance mm-hmm. and to the to the lyric, and you, have, you sort of forced you to shut up and listen. And I think I think that's a great tool that's a bit underrated, to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. I lose track of who was in the you know, especially bands like with the BMX Bandit. It's like a bit of a joke because every time you see a picture of yeah. the BMX Bandits in the early years, they have a different lineup, so you don't really know if it's just like that was just who was in the house that day. Yeah, I, I, there's a definite element of that, I think, you know. Um, it really was. I think if somebody's passing Norman's dad's shop for a paper, they'd get invited in to, you know, play some tambourine or whatever, you know. I think basically everybody in Glasgow that plays guitar at one time has yeah. been in the BMX band. It's an old, old joke, but it's the kind of stands. <laughs> Yeah, they're. I mean, and they're a totemic band. They sort of stand for a kind of particular sort of attitude. Were that who were the? Can you remember the first songs you wrote that you showed to people? Uh, as, as BMX bandits, you mean? Well, I mean, or or maybe in any other in another context. Yeah. I don't well, know. I guess um, at school we had a band myself and Joe and some other guys called the Eiffel Towers, um, kind of wearing our influences on our sleeves somewhat. But, but you know, we, we saved up money to make a demo. A big, I was a big fan of um, sort of the French French music as well. And, you know, mm. and it just became a, a thing. I loved major seventh chords and and I just aspired to that kind of thing. So, yeah, right. we, we, wrote, we wrote a wee bunch of songs, um, probably more than heavily influenced by uh, Paul Weller at the time, all that kind of thing. So what, Paul Weller, Star Council? Yeah, Weller. that kind of, you know, Apari. You know, that was, that, yeah. that, I, I was a sucker for that whole image, you know, the whole mm. thing. But yeah, that was that was, part, that was me more than anybody else, I would say. I don't think anybody else had that same kind of love of the jam and Star Council that I did. I don't think it was, you know, it was, it was maybe it was cool enough, but hey, it, it worked for me. It's funny, really, that he went from doing, like, being in the jam who sometimes sounded like the angriest band in the world yeah. To just completely inverting it with things like "Long Hot Summer" and "You're the Best Thing" and and so forth. Yeah, you know. and I always found it really jar- jarring almost um, after listening to him sing and then hearing him talk. And I thought, 
how's that the same person? You know, I, I, I find it a strange, strange contrast. I still find a bit strange, but that's just an accent thing maybe with me. Yeah, no, it is. I guess, um, I guess he's just trying to channel. I mean, he's another one who kind of where you know he's 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 very vocal about his influences and yeah. um, and I love you know I think that I always really feel engaged with those artists who do that because it reminds me that they're just fans like me. Yeah. And along the way, they kind of refract it through that unique thing that every songwriter has got, and you end up with something that isn't quite is more than the sum of the influences of that you know artist. Yeah. So, I, th- I think it's you're working with you've got a certain blueprint. I think, and you're quite happy playing away quite happily in that field. I think Ray Davis had a, had a, a style of songwriting, and Grant McLennan had a style of songwriting, and I think you're just sort of tinkering, you're moving the pieces around, you know, it's just, it's a tapestry. And I think, mm. I, I think that's what you push it to. A, you've got a small envelope and you're kind of pushing slightly out of that envelope, but people don't really, people don't really um, want you to, you know, to do that. But I think you've got to go with what, what makes you happy to, you know, to start with. Yeah. Yeah. And so you went sort of, um, I actually, I don't know if you know, but um, I met you um, in, we uh, would have been, 1986 i interviewed you i was editing a, i had my own fanzine and uh i did what all fanzine editors did at the time is i'd sort of i just kind of like kind of managed to kind of get backstage or yeah. kind of purloin a toy a tour manager <laughs> and sort of uh, and ask if it was okay to interview them a tour manager was very nice you, you know but mm-hmm. the ones i met anyway they were quite nice and I ended up t- uh, interviewing you all at um, backstage after a gig you did at Birmingham University. Okay. And you were, it, it, I, I just stolen all my questions from what I tended to do. I, I loved the the kind of questions they got in Smash Hits. So I would literally just like copy them out of Smash Hits <laughs> and ask them to indie bands. No. And you all seemed kind of quite tickled by that. I think because you were still quite a young band at that point, it probably would have been reading Smash Hits the year before. Yes, yes. No, but, I, don't, um, I, I, don't, I have no recollection of that, Pete, I have to say. No, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> I'm amazed if you didn't. But, um, but you were sort of like, I saw you at uh, another venue, a venue called Burberry's in Birmingham. Oh, yeah. And that was uh, just around the time that Whole Wide World uh, sort of came out. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I don't think the Sioux Dragons get enough credit for this, but you were just such a great pop group. Like the melody, you were like you brought the melodies consistently. It was mm-hmm. like, how almost like a bubblegum attitude to writing melodies. Yeah, I think Sean had, had such a great talent for just, I mean, it was almost like industrial scale, you know, it, it was just knocking these tunes out, you know, all kind of bar chords just up and down the, the fretboard, you know, it's like, how am I supposed to remember? It's like, must be like yeah, being in the, a, a, a guitarist in the Ramones, because it's about 39 songs in a half hour set, and it's like, oh my God. So... <laughs> It was that was difficult, you know. It's like remind me again for what tune this is, you know. Oh really? Do you find so you were struggling to keep up? Yeah, I think so. I think the fact as well, Ross, the drummer, he didn't, he hadn't been a drummer before he, he joined the band, so it was a kind of voyage of discovery for everybody, and we were just kind of making it up as we were going along. There was yeah, yeah there was a certain formula to that, you know. We would go in and hammer out six or seven songs, and then the next the next rehearsal we would do the six or seven songs. But they'd be rejigged slightly, or they'd add a wee bit, and you know, and all that kind of thing. And it's just, my God, how do we keep up with this? You know, very impressed by his, his songwriting skills. The turnover just said the velocity just seemed sort of relentless. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And I think that once we started putting out records, we had to kind of slow it down because 
I guess the, you know the the system and the production side of things it was just it was it couldn't cope with that volume, you know. I guess right. like kind of that Prince thing, you know, like he's got all, yeah. he had all these albums <laughs> that he couldn't actually get out there. No, great songs though. I mean, like you know, Hang Ten is still you know an all time favorite of mine and. Can't take no more. I mean, I remember, you know, it's very exciting. And my God, I had, if I was excited to see you on the chart show, yeah, I, I guess, I, you know, multiply that by 10 in your case. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we were, every Saturday we were, it felt as if we were on, you know. Um, it was chart show liked you a lot, didn't they? They did, they did. I think I think we were quite a visual visual band. I think having a, an artist like Ross in the band, sort of you know, driving the visual aspect was really helpful for us. And, and then Cecile and was such a visual guy as well. Um, mm. It's all kind of pop art and, and just, you know, that kind of trash aesthetic, you know. It's really, it really yeah. looked great on the telly. It was, I remember on the, you know, the fact box that you get on the chart show. So, like, for, for pe- younger people listening, there's, yeah. the, the, you know, the chart show, Friday night kind of music show, just showed a bunch of videos. And uh, two-thirds of the way through, they had a kind of, primitive computer display which showed you facts about a video it said this video cost 60 pounds in total to make or something yeah if i remember that rightly but it was something ridiculously yeah cheap. yeah it was, it was it was ridiculous um yeah and it was fast you know it was like three takes and then just kind of put them together overlaid them with some other footage that Cecile had and then you know edit it and then we sent it down to london and our tell management company and then they they gave it to the chart show, and next Saturday it was on the television. It was bizarre. <laughs> yeah, and there was a lot. It seemed to be there seemed to be a lot of having fun with formats. So like one record came out on a double groove. Yeah, so like like two two separate grooves on one side of the record. So you didn't know what song you were going to get when you put the needle on the record. Yeah, that, yeah, that was a bizarre one. I think. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these ideas came from our manager at the time, Jazz Summers, and. No. We, we kind of looked and aghast at him when he was saying this, and we we're going to have like four different colour vinyl for Hang Ten, and then you know, and then we're going to stick a, we're going to cling film a, a patch, a sew-on patch into the, you know, onto the single, and you're going to get a poster. So it was all basically it was a lot of great marketing things, you know, and it's yeah. and I think it's definitely a lost art, you know, but you can <laughs> you can see it kind of creeping back the the resurgence of vinyl, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it yeah. did it did work, yeah. So it was a fun. I mean, it it looked like a lot of fun to be in that band. I mean, you ended up on you were one of the first of that generation of indie bands to sign to a major label. Yeah, and uh, that must have been a bit of a gamble at the time. I did. Was it? Was it? Did how did that play out for you? Well, it was a huge gamble, and I I, did, I don't think it was it worked for us because up until that point we had you know we were hitting the top ten indie um, every record we put out, but as soon as we mm-hmm released I think it was maybe Kingdom Chairs of This yeah. Is Our Art on mm. Sire. Yeah. Um, it it didn't obviously didn't register in the indie charts anymore and it was straight into the the major charts and it, it went to like number fifty maybe or maybe not as high as that but mm. straight away your your pres- you know your visibility just plummets. You're, well you're, not, you're suddenly competing with Madonna really aren't yeah, you? Yeah and you're not you're not in the indie, you're not in the chart show anymore because you you're playing against the, the big boys and big girls and yeah, your visibility dropped. So we had to kind of tour a lot and that kind of dropped away because people went buying the record. And right. at, that, at that point as well, Ross had uh, the inclination to go back to art school and finish his degree. Yeah. So that kind of kind of drew a line under our, you know, what we were doing up to that point. And we had to kind of regroup and think about 
of what we were going to do next. Um, but did you? How did you get on with the sort of travel side of things? You know, being you know, sort of having to that pressure to sort of make an impression on America. Were you enjo- Were you enjoying the tr- the travel, or was it just ba- a bit too much too soon? Um, it's funny because we were desperate to get there you know, for about three years, and, and the management would say, "No, don't." But bide your time, bide your time. And once we had left Sire, because they had they had finally dropped us because we weren't hitting the top forty, we got picked up by Mercury, and you know they wanted us over to America. They wanted us to to tour. They put us on an American, you know, a world, a states wide tour of with in excess, and what? so that was that was very um, intense. And <laughs> yeah, they they had a private. Yeah, they had a private jet, and they were flying between New York and Chicago and LA, whereas everybody else had to, you know, drive to all the shows, and you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of driving, you know, over the space of three months. Did you never? Did you ever get to see the inside of Inexcess's private jet? No, unfortunately not. No. Oh man. Uh, so what was that? Was like bunk beds and yeah, of... bunk beds and really loud music up the back of the bus, that kind of thing. You know. I mean, you know, to, to be honest, you know, like I, for someone who's never been in a band, that in itself probably seems quite glamorous. And so I'm guessing that the the day before you got to ex- have that experience, maybe it was glamorous to you as well. How long did it take to not be glamorous? Oh, uh, good question. Um, I've, I guess that maybe the first and second tours were really glamorous because we we saw the itineraries. You know, they would stretch over like three months. They'd be hitting places like New Orleans. You'd be hitting mm. um, San Diego um, and then Chicago, and Seattle, and it just looked fantastic. But, but you know, by the time like the, the you know fall fall ninety one tour came out, you know, it's like oh my god, here we go again. Like back back to Maxwell's Hoboken, you know, which is a beautiful place. It was fantastic, and the yeah. food, food was great. But um, you know, we just at that point we just kind of oh, we want to go home now, you know. Well, yeah, and you sort of soon do. You sort of left the band shortly. But um, I mean, before we get onto that, you know, this, you know, this 1991. By this time, you'd actually become pop stars in the UK. Yeah, I mean, we hit we hit top five with our cover version of I'm Free by the Rolling Stones. And yeah, that was that was a that was a roller coaster of a of a time. And it was a proper hit as well. It wasn't one that you know, because a lot of indie bands would sort of go in at like number eight or something and then the next week they'd be like forty seven. Yeah. It was in the top ten for ages. Yeah, and it took it it took like about four or five weeks to actually get to the top ten, you know, once it hit the, yeah. the top forty. So the life of it was was kinda yeah, it really did stretch over a couple of months. Did you know? Have you got any way of knowing? Is it is there a moment where you're all in the studio and you think, well, actually, we might have just written a hit, or is it not? Does it never work like that? Well, you know, you get the feeling. You know, you're in, you're kind of right in the middle of it all. But then, if somebody would come down from the the record company and, and sit in and listen to a rough mix, and then kind of, you can tell they had something special. Once we got like Junior Reed on it, and there was a the London Community Gospel Choir were on it, and mm. you know, the Kitchen Sink was on it, and it just, it just blasted. You know, we, we, we knew we had something there, and then the record company girl just burst into tears when she heard it. Really? And, yeah, sweet to God, she did. <laughs> and it was like, oh my goodness, this is a this is a kind of jaded London savvy type business person, and they've just started crying. So, 
we've done something right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, whose idea was it to get people like Junior? They're not obvious ideas. Junior no. Reed was was uh, just not long being the front man with Black Uru at that point. Yeah, I, I think we were we were just looking around to do something a, a wee bit that's different, you know. A bit we had obviously it was a cover version. Um, Rolling Stones song, and we wanted to add something to it that, you know, just to take it, not just a sort of a straight off cover version. So, we Black Kuhuru or, or Junior was were connected to the, our management company, and yeah, it's just uh, using the tools that were there, and we, we were recording like people at Cold Cut who were also on Big Life Records yeah. at the time as well. They were they were in the same building. They had their, their final library is there as well so we'd access to all, all these different elements of even you know the the, the the burgeoning and sort of the dance dj culture in london at the time yeah. so it was all it was all kind of swirling about and we thought why not you know we had we'd, we had that spirit of adventure in the first album and it just kind of updated and carried itself on into the you know love god album and and, and forward yeah. and um did you i mean i remember sort of um the first time I ever went to LA uh, was as as a music journalist accompanying Radiohead when Creep was breaking, um, and it was their first time in LA as well, and it was a real sort of eye opener because in a, the, in a, in an intense period of three days, I got to see the entire transition in in this band mm-hmm. from like you know eyes on stalks, just being amazed by everything that they saw, to like by by the end of the third day they kind of looked like they'd had enough because they weren't really being treated like a band. They were being treated like the human personification of this one song. Yeah, I think I think that is something that's really difficult to get used to. Um, and you know it's you know it's it's happening and you know you're in this big machine and there's certain boxes that the record company want you to tick and you know and you, you sort of fulfil your obligations. But then it, it kind of becomes it came became for us kind of empty and and hollow almost because we, the satisfaction and the excitement that we had in the studio when we recorded this stuff, it became it became really difficult to, to keep that excitement going, you know. Yeah. And, and then if and if you're supposed to be doing like an interview at ten o'clock in the morning with some journalists on the phone, and the night before you're supposed to have been doing a meet and greet after the show. Um, you say at eleven o'clock at twelve o'clock at night. It's really hard to keep that energy up, especially if I mean, we were only like I guess Radiohead were the same. They'd be 23, 24 years old at the time, yeah, yeah. and it's it's trying to keep that momentum and that focus. And I, I think it was just it was too much, and it was too soon, you know, for us. Which of you handled it? Did some of you handle it better than others? I think I think maybe I would say maybe Shishil possibly handled it, handled it the best because he, he didn't drink alcohol. And wow. So we, we were kind of burning the candle at both ends and, you know, and that's that sense of thing. So it was like, yeah, I think it was funny to start with. It was great fun. But then, oh, my goodness, you really just want to put your head down and go to sleep for a wee while, you know. There's an infamous um, uh, TV clip of, of, of you on breakfast television uh, like the, when you've been up all night. Yeah. You somehow you look like you've been frog marched into this yeah. TV studio. With... I think that was Paul Quinn and Sean Dixon, and they were, they were told they would play. I think it was the Brixton Academy we had played the night before, and then they were told that uh, they would like us on uh, Lorraine Kelly GMTV, and and I think the, the boys just stayed up all night basically. And I think there was some 
quite inane questioning going on, and I just think well. they were they were suffering fools very gladly that morning. I'll tell you. <laughs> Uh, well, Cecile and I watched it on the television back at the flat, and it was like, oh, jeez. <laughs> Where was your flat at this point? Still in Glasgow? No, no, we were we were just, they put us up in a flat round about Shepherd's Bush. You know, we were just all kind of piled into one house because we were spending right. so, so much time in London. So, yeah. I mean, it felt like you just disappeared for a few years. It felt like you were constantly touring America, and... Um, you know, to the point where records came out over there, which I don't think even came out over here. Um, yeah, it's possible. I think after the Love God album, there was a, an album called Hotwired. And I think we were spent, we recorded it in, in London, in Brighton, but we didn't we didn't tour it in this country, as far as I remember. But we spent a lot of time in America working it and um, getting on to the, the David Letterman show and Arsenio Hall show, that kind of thing. You know, doing a lot of tele, American television. Um, yeah, so and I think that that was detrimental to us because obviously the, the NME and the sounds and the melody maker were weekly magazines, and we kind of just dropped off the radar and yeah. stopped, stopped being flavour of the month and all that kind of thing. And it, yeah, I did feel for you because they, uh, yeah, because they, you know, often they weren't very sort of pleasant about you, and I can imagine, you know, I sort of feel like. Sure. I, occasionally, I see kind of social media posts from Sean. You know, he still occasionally yeah. seems understandably angry about that. Because yeah, it's smart. It's smart. It still hurts him, you know. And I, and I get it totally, you know, because we were yeah. we were so proud of it, and it felt as if we had moved into a, some different area than, and we weren't we weren't allowed to move into, you know. And you know, we yeah. were we were crossing lines that we weren't supposed to cross because we were a wee indie band from Glasgow. And you know, but you know, that's just what we did. What we we felt was good. Well, it did. It did rather feel at times like you know, that, like you know, like maybe Primal Scream were getting a little bit of a free pass, mm. and like all, all the all the things that maybe Primal Scream, some of the things that maybe Primal Scream might not get a free pass for, were being kind of shunted, <laughs> shunted onto the Soup Dragon. Yeah, it, it did feel a bit like that as well. Um, uh, because just, like. Sorry, go on. No, it's just a bit. I think the timing issues of certain things and people, you know, yeah. the, the, kind of the, that old thing about the, the winners rewrite history. You know, mm. the, the timing of it all was wasn't quite as as clear cut as some people would like to think it was. Well, one thing I really love about this uh, gr- uh, this do- documentary that you featured in quite heavily as well, Grant uh, Grant McPhee's Teenage Superstars. Yeah, is it really? Um, it, it it really elevates that incredibly creative period back back you know to, to its sort of rightful place because it was really really creative and it was amazing that all the you know it was a, also it was a very it was like a working class musical movement as well mm-hmm. which you know you hardly ever sort of get to see these these days and um you know and you know it's that stuff is still very very popular i know i know it is because when i make playlists with that stuff on there you know hundreds of people sort of subscribe to them mm. so it's like younger people don't have that baggage when they look i know and again it's sort of like through my own kids who kind of sometimes hear listening to that stuff they don't have any associated baggage with it at all do they yeah it's i know it's strange um i remember at one time i we had we were doing a television show and Edwin Collins was doing the same show and then he, he kind of asked me, I said, "What is it? What is it like? You don't. There's no sort of 
you've not got a subculture anymore. You know, who's who's your following? Is it, you've got no tribe following you. You know, and it was like, well, I never even thought of that, Edwin. You know, <laughs> it's like we we were just kind of making music for the sake of it, and and apart from saying maybe a generic and students were buying the music, it's hard to, it's hard to you know define you know who who the tribe was. You know, because yeah. because we had we had the mods, we had the punks, we had Ted's and all that, but then. It hadn't really been labelled. Do you remember when this conversation happened? I reckon it was 1987 or so. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it was. But, but he, but you did, you did have this subculture. I mean, but he, was, yeah, but he didn't, he didn't seem to see it. I don't know. He it's funny because they, because yeah. because that had become he he inherited that subculture because it, he kind of started it with the the postcard records and the first the first Orange Juice album. Yeah. So that. They were all still listening to that. That was almost like their their rite of passage into sort of being into stuff like you guys. Yeah, it was our, our touchstone as well. You know that all you can't hide your love forever, and yeah. and it was just even being in the same room as, as people like Edwin or Roddy would. It just it would fill me with awe. You know, and mm, yeah, mm. it's just one of those things. Yeah, I'm a bit intrigued about your 1990s because you left the Suit Dragons carried on without with just Sean as yeah. the the front man and different. Yeah. Was he session musicians? Was it after that or yeah, it? it was pretty much. There was just people that they pulled together that he knew. There was a a, a guy that um, played guitar in the band. Yeah. It had been the roadie, um, and so he kind of knew the music. And there was a I think there was a tour pretty much on the horizon, and they needed. To get a band together, but um, yeah, so he kind of put it together, and then he managed to get stellar people like Bootsy Collins involved and Tina Weymouth, so and Bollywood string orchestras and all sorts, you know. So yeah, it's a it's a different different band, but you know, it's still getting mm. Sean's Sean's heart songwriting at the, the core of it. But there's a gap, isn't there? Because you know, you still have at that point, um, you um, you haven't started working with Isabel Campbell and the Green yeah. Peppers uh, songs were sort of some way down the line yet. Yeah. So what, what were your what, what were your 1990s like? Well, I spent a long time with um, going back and playing with Joe McElindon, um, who I'd been at school with in a band called Superstar. And oh, yes, of course. I saw you with them, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we, I mean, we spent we four or five years with, with Joe and, and doing that, like, like uh, three or four great albums. And yeah, it was, and we were kind of, all the ideas were there, all the music was there and, you know, the performances were there, but the record company wasn't really paying attention to it. And it kind of sort of just, there's always that strange thing about kind of power pop music that's, mm. is, is there a market, is there a, a, you know, a market for it, apart from a very niche market, should we be doing this in a, a major record label, but, you know. It just that's what we'd, we tried to do, and it didn't work. And that that's a bit mm. that took about five years, you know, to do all that to go through that. But great records. Been, sorry, go on. No, go I on. just said they, they were great records, and it's just a shame that they weren't yeah. a bit better heard. They were great records, and there was a slight. Um, it, there must have been a slight sense of deja vu for you, in a in a in a sense, for being on an American label. Yeah, having gone from Soup Dragons to being on an American label again. Who you know, maybe you getting a sense of once again that you you know you're sort of they're not really kind of getting what what it is that you you're trying to do. Yeah, uh, we were definitely in a we were in a hierarchy. We weren't anywhere near the top of it at all. Um, hmm. like there was like 
Aye. There was like kids' kids' records put out and getting more focus on them, and they were asked to play this CMJ thing, and but it was like the week after CMJ had happened and things like that. So there was a really yeah. kind of a calamitous um, <laughs> approach to arranging things for us, and nothing really clicked because you've got to have so, you know, you've got to spin so many plates for um, to do well in America, and there, was, there wasn't enough plate spinners basically. Absolutely. So, so that that sort of ran its kind of course. Yeah. Uh, where were you based? Were you, were you in Glasgow throughout? Well, mostly we spent a good um, three months, four months maybe, and uh, based in New York as well, just like playing up and down the the East Coast. Um, wow. But yeah, but we, we spent we, we recorded um, mostly in in the UK. So, yeah, it was tricky. <laughs> Talking about kind of being going up, being in New York, obviously, you know, you're well traveled mm. as, a, as a music. You mentioned this sort of earlier on. What do you, um, if you know, as someone who kind of buy as a record buyer, you know, the, that's that's the bit about being in a band I really envy, really, just the sort of basically in between, you know, between doing the sound check and go checking into the hotel and stuff. I'd just be sort of in record shops, really. Well, yeah. I mean, I think when you're on tour, you do have a routine, and there are you have to be in certain places at certain times every single day. So you you value your free time jealously, and yeah, it was always part of the thing. You know, after sound check or maybe before sound check, you'd always go out and try and check out where the, the local record stores were, and you know, and then you would know when you came back to that town where exactly to go. You know, yeah, it was always. Did you ever find that? Did you ever find that first pressing of Forever Changes? Yeah, I did. I think it was in, maybe in Newcastle. I don't know. I don't know why I remember that, but yeah, it was just like, oh, here we go, you know, rubbing my hands. Yeah, and then then it was like the, there was also I think another great one for me was the Beach Boys Twenty Twenty. It was a gatefold sleeve. And wow. I, yeah, and I, I was like, hello, this is I never even knew this existed. So yeah, things like that, and they were you know selling for buttons. You know, there was I don't think there was a great market for it. And when you're in a record country. shop and you find a record like that, do you sort of like do you part, for me part of the sort of and this is like a kind of a pathetic, pathetic thing to admit, but for me. Part of the thing is when I find something that I was really after, and if it is like not going for very much, then I then like then it's almost like I have to be cool about it because <laughs> if I look excited, someone might snatch it off me oh. or say, "Oh, that's being priced incorrectly," so yeah. I'm terribly sorry. So part of the fun is like being trying to be super cool when I go up to the counter and just kind of calmly hand over my money. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the trick there is, is to buy two other ones and then slip it in the middle, you know, so undercover. <laughs> it's always not, it was, it's, yeah, it's, it's nice. I still like it when you get that kind of a, little, uh, a, a, knowing, a, a knowing look or a sort of... Um, or uh, you know a commendation from uh, it's pathetic really because I'm 51 <laughs> and I'm still like I'm still 14 when I go up to the counter of a record shop you know I'm still looking I'm still trying to earn the approval of the person behind the counter yeah I, I know I know you just you just have to maybe don't make eye contact and you know and just you know yeah this is what I'm buying and you know just go for it you know, trust your instincts yeah absolutely and so um so that was so yeah so you uh, Again, there's this sort of like because I really you, you sort of slightly 
dropped off my radar until you you emerged with this group called Green Peppers and a, and a record called Joni's Garden, which I, which as you know I loved. Um, what what was the sort of how did that sort of come about? Uh, well, I think basically after the superstar um, thing, I basically uh, I kind of walked away from the music thing for a while, and um, I met my wife and we got married and. You know, we started a family and whatnot, and then, but then I had a hankering to to start writing songs again because I'd, I'd used to do it at school. But this was obviously me trying to find mm. my own voice by this point, and and I thought, well, I better start now or it'll never happen. So away I went and started writing tracks in the house, and you know, gradually I built up enough songs, and then saved up some money and went into the studio, and you know, just recorded it over a. That's period of time. Were you ever having to sort of supplement what you were doing? We have you ever got to the point where you've had to get a day job? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no no doubt about it. Um, I, I worked in a record store for a while, and then I worked in Marks and Spencers as well. So there's lots of lots of things that I've had to do. Okay, okay. Let's. This is interesting. This is very yeah. interesting. Well, it's to supplement. Just you know, to supplement uh, what I do. And I think with yeah. being a musician, it's. Feast or famine, you know. A lot of the times, I think you've got oh, yeah. to, you've got to have a, a something that's um, you know steady and and it's always going to be there ticking away in the background. And anything, well, that, el- anything else is a bonus, you know. Totally, totally. I th- I'm I'm especially interested in these kind of uh, details. In well, well, first of all, what was the record shop? It was a place in Glasgow, Shawlands, the east, the south side of Glasgow, called Salvation Sounds. Um, for, oh, I've for, been there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Glenn and Lynn, they were the, the owners, and yeah, they, they very kindly gave me a job, and I worked in there for a, a couple of years. I loved every minute of it. I think I might have bought a bootleg CD of alternative takes of songs from Revolver. Ah, in that shop, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> Sorry, uh, an unofficial CD. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it was from that shop, but um, I, I anyway, um, yeah. And um, was it? Do, do, you must have. Well, you know, like a record shop, quite a cool record shop like that. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely inevitable that you would have had someone come in and say, "Hey, aren't you the guy from the Suit Dragons?" Yeah, that did happen on occasion. So you know, I just kind of burst people's bubble a wee bit, or maybe I, I could just be projecting onto them. But I think, yeah, there's. There's elements of you know. I'd be delighted. I'd be thrilled if I yeah. went. A shot, you know, I, would. I think. Yeah, I think it's funny. The further away you get from the the Suit Dragons, it's like it becomes a, a real foreign country. You know, it's like you were only like twenty two years old, twenty three when it all finished, and that's, sure, that's yeah. a long time ago. Now I want to ask you about Marks and Spencer, uh, oh. which uh, is what were you doing for them? Well, working. Um, Believe it or not, in the bakery, and you know, doing was it was it it was it in store? Was it? uh, I was going to ask, is it like a centralised bakery, and then it go all the bread goes out to, or was it an in store bakery? No, it was in 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 store, in store. Fantastic. And uh, did you uh, uh, did you get to? Were you able to kind of go off with any th- things that you might not have sold in the daytime? Did you get, were there perks? Yeah, there was. You know, there, there's definitely a, there's definitely an element of that, which isn't good for the waistline, I have to say. But really, know. did you actually put on weight while you were there? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's just part of it. 
Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I would uh, just the smell alone would be uh, would do for me. Yeah. What was your favourite thing? What was your kind of? Oh, I think probably the pecan and maple um, pastries. Oh, yeah. I think it's like almost like they put crack cocaine in them or something. Um, yeah, I've had them. And yeah, I very, mean, very Moorish. Second only to the yum yum, really, in yeah. the in the, in the pantheon of uh, addictive Marks and Spencer's comestibles. Exactly. Um, but and also, you don't feel like as much of a of a. It's very hard as an adult to ask. You say, "Have you got any yum yums?" Is there yeah. some, some products with names that really aren't really you're not supposed to ask for as an adult? Yeah, yeah. There's, there's too many concepts wrapped into the one pastry sometimes as well, like cruffins, <laughs> cruffins and stuff like that. So yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, is it so? That was like a your classic sort of nine to five or ten to six job. You kind of go home at night, and presumably you wouldn't have to worry about a thing, right? Yeah, you, you worry about. Well, it's actually it was six to two, so it's a very early start, and you know. Oh right, of so, course, yeah, it's bakery, yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. It's just, I mean, I think there is something kind of, a, you know, like I, you know, there's kind of pros and cons to any job, but I think there's definitely something quite enviable about a job. Because I always feel in, like in my own line of work, like I could be doing more, like I could be doing more. It's like, mm. And that's like the payback of, I guess, Chris Rock does this quite good routine about um, how you always know if you've got quite quite a good job because you're sort of going, shall I just do another hour before I knock off? Whereas you know that's sort of like, you know, someone who's kind of on the bins or something, you know, isn't say, shall I just collect, shall I just collect rubbish for one more hour before I kind of, but um. But I do think that there is something really, really, and I remember it from like when I had an office job in my twenties. Um, something really kind of great about just going home and just saying, "Okay, that's me done." And any yeah. television I watch will be guiltless television, and any any leisure time I get, anything I do in my leisure time will be guiltless. That's quite nice, isn't it? Yeah, it's like an, a, a job well done, and you know you've earned your money, and it's a you know, you're working with real people in the real world. You know, you're not. There's no high concept to what you're doing. You're you're just you're doing your job and you're going home. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite satisfying. Did those experiences inspire any songs, or not really? Um, not not particularly. It's probably the, the songwriting <laughs> was like an escape from from that kind of thing. You know, from away from the industrial machine. But yeah, it just. It's I just thought you might be like Billy Joel and like you know like when he wrote Piano Man or something. <laughs> you know, like, sort of. <laughs> No, I'd, I'd need to. I'd, I don't know what rhymes with bakery. I'd need to have a wee look at a rhyming dictionary. Bakery. Yeah. For instance, but, but yeah. there's not much fakery in the bakery. Yeah, well, that, that's, you've got you've got me right there. Yeah. Sorry, I, that's that's why I'm not a songwriter because this is the <laughs> caliber of ideas I come up with. Oh, um, uh, anyway, uh, yes. Yeah, so, um, so you kind of you sort of edged back, and how did you? How did you? Um, how did the Isabel Campbell thing come along? Presumably, you must have known each other at some in some capacity prior to. Well, to be honest, it's everything I've done is kind of sprung from that Green Peppers first album because she, I was looking for a songwriter, a singer to you know, a female singer to sing some of my songs, and I didn't really know anybody because I had been out of the you know the, the, the Glasgow circuit for a wee while, and mm. I asked Cecile Dade from the Soup Dragons, did you know of anybody? And he mentioned Isabel. And she might be up for doing something because she had just been, um, she had just been, yeah, she'd just been kind of left Bell and Sebastian. And so I asked her, I sent her some tracks and she liked what she heard and we met up and we had a chat and we found we had a lot in common. Um, yeah, and from there, it, it, 
and she liked what I was writing, and then she asked me to write for her, and it, it kind of mm. organically grew from that. Fantastic. Yeah. And um, and what were the first sort of? Did it did that just kind of click straight away? It did. Um, yeah, I, was, I mean, she sang two songs. I think it was the Blink of an Eye and the Dreamer on the Green Peppers album. Right. And yeah, and then between that and the second Green Peppers album, she had started looking to you know record her own material. And she asked me to, to write a couple for the pot, as she put it. And, you know, I did. A couple for the what? The pot. You know, just to put yeah. in the pot. So, <laughs> yeah, just, just a, a, you know, a statement like that. And, a, and you know, and then it all kind of blossomed from there. Um, and you were, so you were in the, and how was it, what was the, uh, you must, what was it like? How did, it, with Mark Lanigan in the mix in the studio, what was it like kind of working with those two? Yeah, it was it was fun, you know. It was quite intense. I think. I mean, all all the, the music um, we recorded and ready to go before Mark, you know, came in to the situation. And yeah, it, it was great. You know, he was a he worked quite professionally. You know, and he was he liked to work fast and you know, kind of ninja, ninja style, get in and get out. Um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was intense. You know, but it was. It was very satisfying, to be honest. You know, it just if I wrote a song called um, "You Won't Let Me Down Again," and yeah. and he and he just he nailed it, and it just sounded like a million dollars to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a great it's a lovely inversion of uh, of what so often happens in you know it's like an inversion of the the Nancy Lee situation in which yeah. you know Mark Mark was sort of like the muse in this case almost and. Um, and what a what a fantastic position to negotiate for yourself in you know in in is for Isabel to negotiate for yeah. I think her her first notion was maybe to try and get Tom Waits to sing, but she could not get a hold of Tom Waits. So she sort of looked around and asked around, who could we get in to sing these songs? And, and Mark Lanigan's name came up. And then the the first tour, the Ballad of the Broken Seas, Mark wasn't available, so on the tour. Eugene Kelly sang the songs, mm. and that was kind of bizarre. So, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's strange. I've just got to ask you about one or two songs that I just yeah. love. Which I think who 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 built the road was one that you co-wrote, right? Yeah, I, I wrote that um, just as a just the same thing. She'd asked me to write some songs for the for the pot. I think that was for the second album, uh, Sunday oh, Sunday at Devil Up, mm. and it's kind of just expanding on the theme. I think the. You know, having the, the you know the two protagonists again, um, just developing it on from from Ballad of the Broken Seas. You know, yeah. there was a bit more drama. There was a bit more room. The kind of characters were a bit more developed, and that, that's how we kind of well, that's how I kind of treated them. Like, yeah, because yeah. We, when we were on tour, it was it ended up being very theatrical. You know, and mm. the, the flow of the set it became like almost like a, a musical. You know. Um, and it was like a psychodrama set to music with no, you know. Yeah. So yeah, it, it became it, it was an opportunity to expand um, all that kind of thing. It must have been amazing to watch her watch Isabel sort of evolve in such a brilliant way as a as as someone who can sort of steer steer a record like that from having gone been so young with Bell and Sebastian. Yeah. Uh, to sort of um, that must be a very gratifying thing to be part of. It's brilliant. I mean it was a real inspiration. I mean she she had I mean her, her persona is very kind of ethereal and you know like a bit um, looking at you know ditzy and whatnot. People like to 
to really uh, you know underestimate her. And I think she's got a, a total grip in what she does, and she knows exactly what she wants to do. And I, I, I can't you know I can't praise her enough. Her, her method and her you know her, her forensic attention to detail in the studio is is, yeah. is totally knockout. It was funny actually because I interviewed her um, for around towards the end of the campaign of that first album uh-huh. and uh and mark you know with mark and it, oh, so many people warned me about mark you know like you know he's you know he doesn't suffer fools gladly and mark mark was a pussycat but like if if isabel thought i was even edging close to saying something patronizing uh-huh. um i it would the, the the question would be quite dis, would be just dismantled in front of me yeah. and uh I, and you know it was i was i came away feeling um Rather more scared of Isabel than I was. <laughs> Quite actually considerably more scared of Isabel than I was. Was yeah. Mark? Um, let's talk about Snow Goose, uh, which um, which is um, a, a fan. Well, we touched on it on that previously before, but um, but Snow, Snow Goose is, seems to have sort of taken the. I was going to say the lion's share of your territory. Although, of course, you, you're also now an academic, aren't you? Because you mm-hmm. somewhere along the line you got. You got a master's degree, didn't you? Yeah, I decided to, to go back I mean, um, to, to university. I had left college after a year and a half to you know to join the Soup Dragons, and it just kind of hit the ground running at that point. And I really had a hankering to go back and you know finish. I wanted to get some kind of qualification of some description, and I realised I just was looking around and I thought, oh, you can actually do a get a BA in music, and then you can actually get a master's in songwriting. So. Yeah. I thought, well, I really I want to teach people, you know. So the only way I'll do that is if I get a qualification. So because all you know the old, the old boy networks they've all disappeared. Nobody needs to have a, a qualification of some description. So yeah, yeah I, I decided to bite the bullet and put myself in the rack for three years, and you know, and I came out with a master's. So yeah, it was yeah, it was all. I mean, it, it helped me with my process, my songwriting process. But you know, yeah. it's just you know, just it kind of firms up everything that you've you've been doing for the last 30 years or whatever was it like a correspondence thing or were you actually like turning up and going to lectures no no i was i was turning up we were doing i was full-time um at the university of the rest of scotland uh down in air campus and i was right. i tell you i was I, I was probably older than the lecturers never mind the, the students but well, it's funny because i remember when i when i was at university um you know you sort of we'd sometimes gaze on at the mature students and we'd be like why are they so serious? You know, why why aren't they having as good a time as we are? And of course, it's because <laughs> it's because they're older and they've lived life and like yeah. they they've got they've got responsibility. You know, you had kids. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't occur to me like at the time that someone with children might not be living for the for the for the prospect of hitting the union bar at eight thirty and getting yeah. trolley. The, the snake bait just doesn't have the same appeal. <laughs> <laughs> We were like, they're not having any fun. Why are they even here? You know, <laughs> <laughs> boo. Yeah. I know. <laughs> anyway, so sorry, sorry if you had to sort of, um, yeah, put up with that. Um, so, uh, and then you were sort of you. So you're writing song. I guess you know the fact that you you were kind of academically sort of you know, you you know you you were doing this sort of academically. Did that have any kind of bear any relation to the sort of process of? Of, of songwriting, uh, it kind of it, it had to do, um, but because it was a, a the, the masters was on songwriting specifically, so it was more like looking at th- theories of creativity and um, 
and just the structural things in music and and just looking at your own processes and your thought processes and being able to reflect on it all and whatnot. So, but I think it's that a lot of people may be scared of that or put off by that and quite a dry, dry exercise, you know, Mm -hmm. and theory and whatnot. But I think, I think it really does help to toughen up your, you know, the way you look at, look at things and, you know, you're not scared to make decisions, artistic, creative decisions, because you know, well, I know this is this is something that I can do, and I'm doing it. So yeah, it just it gives you a bit of self confidence. Yeah. Say. There's a I saw a picture of you somewhere with the kind of mortarboard on your head, and um, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. felt oddly proud of you, even though I didn't had no reason to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that. <laughs> um, Let's talk a little bit about um, uh, your your current release now, yeah. um, and the, the process of signing to this label, Violet, which is a very sort of you know it's a very kind of curated label. They were you know they're very careful about who they release records by. It's a beautiful record. It's uh, nine songs in total, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. And, um, sorry, carry on. No, no, go on. Oh no, they were just at. The record is a sort of culmination of my of my master's uh, creative project, and uh, and a part of that process was actually getting it out there and, and letting people hear it. And I thought, well, I, I I don't just want to put it out and like say Bandcamp and you know tell people it's there. I actually want to you know this is a record. Um, mm. I, I put so much work into this, um, and it should be able to stand in its own merits without being attached to a you know a dissertation or whatever. And so what I did was I, I sent sent it to, to Matt at Violet and, and he loved it for what it was, you know, without knowing there was a, a full backstory to it. So that that's exactly what I wanted. And, you know, he he and Pascal, the, the two head honchos there, decided yeah, they, right, they, would yeah. like, they would like to put it out. And so, and here we are like 18 months later, you know, on the, on the eve of the album release. It's such a lovely little, it's a very beautiful artifact as well. You know, it, you. Yeah. it's, it's, it just it's just fantastic yeah they've got a great aesthetic as a label and everything's very you know tied up in the art and the ethics of it all and the artist is at the center of it you know and you know that really that really appealed to me so this is quite some happy ending because how do you mind if i ask how old you are 55 pete this year 55 so you're four years uh yeah yeah you're three three years older than me Mm -hmm. and um and so um the Finally, there's a record which has got your name on it. You know, it took long enough to come. <laughs> um, you've got two teenage boys. Yeah. What do they do? You, you must have, like, done that proud dad thing of just showing some fire. Hey, guy, this is what this is what I do. Yeah, yeah. I, that just goes over their heads or under their feet or, you know, I think they're just <laughs> dads playing the guitar again or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a tricky one because sounds oddly familiar. I've got to say. Yeah, yeah. It's like what what's important to me isn't important is important to them. But it's like everybody follows their own path, you know. But what are they? What are they into? Um, the youngest one is very much an Xbox boy, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what he does, and he loves it. And the older mm-hmm. one, older one, is looking at. Um, he he's done a bit of music at school, and he's looking to do sort of medicine at university. So he's, he's super focused on, you know, on that. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, 
Uh, so they're at a point now where I guess you're you're probably you and your wife are starting to get your evenings back, and and I guess the 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 room is I guess the 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 album as much as anything is the measure of that, you know, because you yeah you've had, you've had the time and space in which to do it properly. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know it was all it was all for a reason. You know, it wasn't just yeah. um, just kind of a, a notion. Um, but it's funny because as you say, fifty five is an age when a lot of people decide to retire. But I'm, I feel as if I'm just getting started. You know. Absolutely, and that the the, the 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 your recent output kind of bears testament to that. And for people who haven't heard it as well, uh, Snow Goose's twenty twenty album, The Making of You, it's a, a beginning to end, beautiful set of songs and, and wonderful personnel on it as well. People like David Scott and Raymond McGinley for um, from mm. the Teenage Fan, David Scott from Pearl Fishers, of course, yeah. and uh, and um, that's a that's a beautiful record is that going to be an ongoing thing snow goose yeah i mean anna and i are in the process of writing the new album just as we speak just now um, and we've believe it or not we've, we've booked the studio for the next album yeah. for the for the next sessions so yeah, yeah. i think once we get into a, a routine i like this kind of routine you can actually start moving things forward and it gets a bit of momentum and yeah this is yeah. this is where i want to be well, hopefully, once lockdown's over, then we'll kind of get to see you in action live. Because certainly, watching you on the key sessions on the BBC's key sessions, mm. that footage is fantastic, and it'd be yeah. it'd be lovely yeah. to get a bit of that in person. Soon. Absolutely, yeah, can't wait. Okay, well, look, thanks for very much for giving up some of your afternoon to uh, catch up with us. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak with you, Jim, and uh, I hope we can get to have a drink in person one day soon. That would be fantastic. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for your time. Okay, Jim. I will let you go now. Cheers. Bye. 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 For more excellent music, you can scoot over to the Ace Records website, www.acerecords.co.uk, for all the wonderful music you could possibly need.